There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at LMFM.ie Friday morning, the 11th of January. Good morning with much debate and discussion from now till 11am. This is Michael Reed on LMFM. As you heard yesterday, the Minister for Foreign Affairs, uh, Simon Coveney, told the BBC he hoped to meet with the DUP in Belfast, where he was to deliver a speech at Queen's University. The Thornister was told it wouldn't be possible to meet Arlene Foster and said that it was some time since the Irish government had met formally with the DUP. Mr Coveney didn't explain what that meant, saying he didn't want to expand on it, but clearly indicated that there was a significant breakdown in communications. All of that turned on its head when Arlene Foster, along with senior members of her party, came out of the woodwork to meet with the Taunishta in Stormont last night. Focus was, as you'd expect, on Brexit, the backstop and the Commons vote on a withdrawal agreement which is expected to be rejected on Tuesday. Jim Wells is an MLA for the DUP in South Down and he joins us now and a very good morning to you Jim Wells and thank you for joining us here on the programme this morning. Was the cat out of the bag yesterday and uh, was it made known uh, and as clearly as it seems to have been made known that communications between the DUP and the Irish government are at a very low ebb? Oh I'm not sure what's happened there. Um, I'm told that Jim Wells is on the line and we're trying to patch him through uh, on the desk as we speak. Uh, But uh, as you can imagine, uh, there was a lot of focus on this meeting, particularly after what the Taunish just said on the BBC yesterday. Jim Wells, I'm told, is on the line. Now, good morning to you, Jim, and uh, thanks for joining us here on uh, the programme this morning. Is the cat out of the bag now, following on from what Simon Coveney said to the BBC yesterday and how there was a a U-turn and Arlene Foster uh, turned up to meet with uh, the Taunish. Are communications between the DUP and the Irish government at a, a very low ebb? I think there was a genuine uh, mistake made here. Um, the, the DUP's doors are always opening to Mr Coveney as the uh, representative of our uh, an adjacent nation. We have no problem whatsoever, and the DUP have met him many times in the past, and indeed Leo Bradker and a whole host of Irish government ministers. So I wouldn't read into it that there was any sort of deterioration in relationships. But you must realise, Michael, it is a, a phonetic 
incredibly busy time for the DUP. The busiestness has straight no question about it. Uh, and sometimes communications can break down. But mm. we did have a very frank meeting with them yesterday. And uh, we made it very clear to him that uh, the deal on the table is just not on. It's not going to happen. And I think we did take it a bit ill that he said that we were not to have a, a formal role in any part of the agreement which affected Northern Ireland. Mm. Uh, that's frankly something he shouldn't have said. Why not? Because he is the representative of a, a different nation. And Northern Ireland has every right to have a very fundamental say in a Brexit agreement which has an impact upon Northern Ireland and which if allowed to proceed would effectively detach Northern Ireland from the rest of the United Kingdom and put us in the waiting room for United Ireland. Mm. And, and so therefore we have every right to be involved in this issue. Uh, uh, I mean, made that very clear to him. The deal on the table, Mike, and if, you, if, if any ambiguity, is any ambiguity after the end of this interview, then I've made a mistake. The deal on the table will not get through and is not acceptable to the DUP. Period. Full stop. Uh, and Simon Coveney said that the DUP should not involve itself in these negotiations. Is that what you're saying? No, what Simon Coveney is saying that Stormont should not have a, a, a form of veto or any form of... Well, no, not... A, yes, well, um, OK. And indeed, the Taoiseach said that yesterday, but uh, the uh, uh, idea that is being proposed by Westminster is uh, that Stormont would be given a, a vote, uh, that you'd be allowed to make your views known, but it wouldn't really hold any water. Well, Simon Coveney wouldn't even accept that. The point is that... You know, we we don't want a, a veto, and I'll tell you why, Michael. Because mm. even if we did veto the backstop or any aspect of it, Westminster could step in and override our decision anyhow. Mm. Well, so that's the, the point. Is, yeah. it, it's a meanness, and then there's another very important point that's been missed in the Republic: is if Stormont is given a veto, then all Sinn Fein has to do to stop that veto being implemented is to walk out of Stormont, as I've done two years ago and stop it having any role because it won't exist. So on both counts, what was being proposed is totally unacceptable. But we do take it very ill that mm. Simon Coveney turned around and said, we weren't even going to you to do that. We'll let you debate it, but you'd have no control through a veto. Uh, I mean, that's not well, all, and he shouldn't have said that. Yeah, well, I mean, it's not up to Westminster or Stormont or uh, the Irish government, for that matter. Uh, I, I mean, if the DUP was uh, to have a veto, if there was any possibility of that, you'd have to have the agreement of 27 other countries. And we don't have, obviously, at least mm. have a quote so, of the agreement with the Irish Republic. So there's, so, no prospect, so there's no prospect of that. Uh, as far as the European Union is concerned, the deal has been reached. There's one deal, and that's not open for renegotiation. So this is to be voted on next Tuesday. Uh, right. The expectation is that it, it'll be voted down. Uh, Simon Coveney said yesterday uh, that uh, you shouldn't take things for granted, and that may not be the case. Uh, what do you think? Well, I think, Michael, we are agreed in this. Next Tuesday, the government will suffer the largest defeat it has ever had uh, since the Second World War. That all the experts are predicting that the proposed Brexit deal, or uh, the stall agreement, will lose by about 120 votes. So therefore, it's quite clear that will show the EU mm. that this agreement is going nowhere and we have to go back to negotiations. 
Well, that's not going to happen in terms of what the EU has been saying. There's one deal and it's not open for renegotiation. Mrs May has come back within three sitting days of Parliament with Plan B when the deal is, as you expect, uh, rejected on Tuesday. Uh, What might be in that plan? And as Mandy Rice Davis famously said, they would say that, wouldn't they? The reality is that once it's made very clear to EU that this agreement is going absolutely nowhere, then negotiations will start. Because the European Union has a £90 billion deficit in trade. Uh, They send us £90 billion more goods than we import from them. Do you think the German car manufacturers, the uh, Spanish lettuce growers, uh, the the Dutch cheesemakers are going to sit back and allow their major market to disappear? Absolutely not. There will be negotiations. And it's very simple, Michael. We we are actually very close to an agreement. The agreement is to drop the backstop. It's as simple as that. The backstop is the major impediment. Now, the DUP and the Conservative Party have other concerns about the overall agreement. But the reality is, if the backstop was gone tomorrow, this deal goes through. Yeah, but uh, what will be in Plan B? Is that what you expect? The plan, the the deal uh, uh, as it's currently drafted without the backstop. Well, if that's where we could get to, then this this problem solves itself, and that is with us and the Conservative Party um, biting the bullet on other issues, such as the role of the European Court of Justice, that we're prepared to 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 accept the deal with all its imperfections, apart from putting Northern Ireland in the waiting room for United Ireland. We're not prepared to do that, Michael. And how many times do we need to say this to you and to your Mm. tens of thousands of listeners? We are not going with a steal. And can I tell you, there's not a cigarette uh, paper between any form of unionism in Northern Ireland on this issue. We are not allowing the Irish Republic to end up having more of a role in our internal affairs than the, the United Kingdom and that's what this deal is going to do. Well there's, ma- well, there's many people who would feel that the DUP is very much out of step with uh, the people of Northern Ireland, that the majority of people want this deal to be accepted. Well, the, the, the vast majority of unionism does not and we are unionist parties. And frankly, Michael, we're under very little pressure in Northern Ireland to accept this deal. People can see the dangers. It's so obvious what's going on here. And the backstop is a major impediment. And the reality is, once that's out of the way, that's a totally different ballgame. We are in a position where we can move very rapidly to agreement by the 29th of March. So that's how important the backstop issue is. And it is interesting that there have been 12 resignations from the government of the United Kingdom. And of those 12, 10 of those individuals Mm. have cited the backstop as the major reason for their concerns. What group has supported the DUP's position in Northern Ireland? I mean, it it seems that all of the business organisations, all of the community organisations, all of the farming organisations, all of the political parties barred the DUP support this deal. Well, all of your news in Northern Ireland is opposed to the the present Brexit backstop deal. Secondly, all of those clarion calls to accept it are also those who who supported remaining within Europe in the first place. That's just the great and the good have come back out Mm. again to say they supported this withdrawal agreement. They were all in the lead. People like the CBI were in the lead, the Federation of Small Business, for us to stay in Europe in the first place. So we're we're not silly. And the reality is... They will understand eventually that putting barriers between us and our main market, which is the rest of the United Kingdom, where 75% of our exports go and 72% of our 
centre of input come from, will be disastrous for Northern Ireland's DPLC. So therefore, we we are under no pressure, Michael, uh, from 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 the great and the good in Northern Ireland to change our position on this, and we're not changing. And that's why I'm glad that Gregory Campbell and Arlene Foster made it absolutely abundant clear. Read our lips. This deal isn't going through because the 10 DUP MPs and mm. about 120 Conservatives are not supporting well, it. Well, we, we hear you, but some people might say you're not listening. Uh, in this game of bluff, what if you lose? What if Europe says no uh, and you're well, wrong, that they're not willing to renegotiate? Well, what then? Well, Michael, first of all, we're not bluffing. We are voting against this on Tuesday. Secondly... OK, well, what about in this game of chicken, then, if you lose? Yeah, well, then we move to a, a no-day Brexit under OWTO rules, and nobody, and I mean nobody, wants that to happen. But what happens is because the European Union have been belligerent. There are ways around this. There is a deal with a Canada Plus trade arrangement. There are ways which can get us out of this particular difficulty. If you ask me what's going to happen, mm. Michael, mm. I think there will be an extension of the negotiation period. Mm. That is my hunch. I'm just saying I don't see uh, Westminster voting for a no-deal agreement. I but, just can't see it happening. But but this is just to open up the negotiations on whatever type of a, a trade uh, agreement will be in place. If you're right, and there's the prospect of a uh, Canada-type arrangement, uh, well then, uh, this is the thing to do, isn't it? Uh, and then go and strike that deal. Yes, and I think that'll require more time, Michael. I, I well, you'll have wait. two to four years to do it. No, that's the transition period. Hmm. You, you get the transition period if you agree to the backstop. Yes. We need to stop the clock and to negotiate you, a deal. You agree to the backstop, and then you have two to four years to negotiate a trade deal. Uh, the problem is, if we don't succeed in that trade deal, Mike, then we're stuck with the backstop for 40, 50, 70 years. And we're not stupid. We're not going to give the European Union that whip hand that they know that if they're belligerent and don't accept uh, Canada Plus deal, that they know they have this sort of Damocles in the form of the uh, backstop hanging over us. You know, make, let's make it absolutely clear. The extension mm. is to negotiate a trade deal and an arrangement does, which does not have the backstop. And I have had no inside information on this, but I think it's inevitable. We're only 78 days away from leaving Europe. I suspect that what is going to happen is that there will be an extension of the period mm. for negotiation. That's my personal view. I have uh, no uh, mandate to say that just that's how I think it's going to happen. If uh, Jeremy Corbyn pushes, pushes for a, a general election and tables a, a motion of confidence, will that have uh, the support of the DUP? No, it won't. Again, we can be very specific. You know, we're not going to play that game because Jeremy, Jeremy Corbyn in charge is an even worse situation than we have at the moment. You know, the DUP have a confidence mm. supply arrangement with the, uh, the government, and I, I would strongly believe the government would win that vote of no confidence. Mm. That doesn't actually help the situation. And I mean, you know, I think after Tuesday, the Prime Minister will see the game is up and she will back a move for an agreement that does not require the backstop. The backstop might... Well, that doesn't matter if Europe isn't in agreement. Well, then the fallback situation is WTO, and nobody wants that, but that could be the situation we, we face, and we need to negotiate with Europe to ensure that doesn't happen. And that is better, you believe, than trying to take somewhere between two and four years to find a solution? No, no, Michael. Michael, you're one of the, North, uh, the Irish Republic's top radio presenters, but you just don't get this. 
the transition to mm. the four-year negotiations mm. only occur once we sign up to the backstop. Yes. Mm. And we are not... Which will not come into play if you find that agreement over that two- and to four-year period. Yes, Michael. Michael, but the problem is if we do not find the agreement, then the backstop's hanging over us. That's pretty and defeatist, the, isn't it? It is. That you, can't find, that you can't find an agreement in four years. Well, then, Michael, the point is we won't find an agreement if the Irish... Uh, government will never agree to any withdrawal agreement that doesn't do the backstop. It's absolutely clear. It's, and it's not just, it's, it's political, because obviously the backstop means that Northern Ireland becomes detached from the rest of the United Kingdom. We're not stupid. You know, we're not going to mm. come into the power or send the spider to the fly. We're not going to do it. We, and the point is, a vast number of Tory MPs in Britain understand and get that point as well. We are not going into any form of transition period until this fundamental point is sorted out. And I, I hate to be repetitive, mm, but would mm. Limerick or, or Mayo accept a situation where had a totally different trading arrangement to the rest of Ireland? No, they wouldn't. And neither are we. We're not going to detach ourselves from three quarters of our UK market. We're not doing it. Mm. But everybody, Mrs May, the Irish government, all of the European leaders say they never expect that to be the case. Right. Well, they never expect it to be the case and drop the idea of the backstop. Oh, right. The point is, it's a double bluff because it's like trying to buy, uh, you know, to rent land as a farmer, knowing full well that the guy can never get out of the deal. He has to rent the land. On that basis, you can ask for whatever you like. They know that the uh, the uh, trade deal, as are that the agreement with the backstop is a total anathema to unionism. And I have yet to find a single unionist in Northern Ireland, Michael, who is in favour of the backstop. Not one. There's total unanimity up here. We're not silly. We can see what's happening. And Simon Coveney didn't help the situation yesterday, but at least he left Stormont with a very clear understanding of where the DUP stood in this. Very, very clear. Uh, there was no hiding behind the bushes, as it were. There was no ambiguity. Mm. The backstop is toxic. It's poison. Okay. And that's as strongly as I can put it. Well, I'm not sure it could be put much stronger, but we'll uh, thank you for putting it to our listeners and for joining us on the programme, as always, this morning. Thank Jim you. Wells, DUP, MLA for South Down. Michael, Michael Reed on LMFM. Well, as we've been discussing, undoubtedly, as you've been hearing, an expert group met yesterday to talk about drones and the risk that they pose to Irish airports after the problems at Gatwick and uh, the probable copycat action at Heathrow. The National Civil Aviation Threat and Risk Group is uh, to carry out a detailed risk assessment of that threat. And as we heard yesterday on the programme from uh, Fianna Fáil TD, James Lawless, his party are asking the government to prior prioritise uh, a bill uh, which would regulate the use of these machines in this country, not just in terms of their use in the proximity of airports and so on, but in general terms because there's a lot of concern about how they're used in terms of privacy and security. Farmers are one of the groups who have expressed a a lot of concerns in relation to this and Lorca McCabe is uh, the Deputy President of the ICMSA that's the Irish Creamery Milk Suppliers Association. Good morning to you Lorcan and thanks for joining us and I, I suppose uh, the risk to security may be more obvious than some of the benefits uh, but you've been hearing from farmers who use some of these machines themselves as tools. Yes indeed Mike, I have indeed yeah. Um, 
I suppose the first of all, last year sometime it was expressed concerns were expressed to us, as you say yourself, for security. And look what we did look into that and it's hard to say whether farmers is again there's some again them and some for them. The people that is we say in favour of them and use them as a modern technology is more than delighted with them. They have, especially in, in crops, they they can put the drones over the crops and they will identify deficiencies or areas of the field that's not doing well. Mm. And they take action to do that rather than, say, walking through the fields and maybe damaging crops. They can see it from, from relatively from the edge of the field. You know, they scan it, scan through it, and they are more than delighted with the with the with the technology you know mm. and i suppose then even in in rough terrain you know such as where hill 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 farmers there with lambs and sheep you know if something goes missing uh, they can they can very quickly you know get over a large area of rough ground that would maybe take hours they can get over with with a drone and maybe so say exactly where a, a stressed lamb or uh, or sheep is in and, and and get to the point straight away so that's i suppose is the the, the good points of it anyway. Yeah, and I suppose the bigger the farm, uh, the bigger the space of uh, land uh, that you have to cover, the more uh, benefit that these things could be, given that there's cameras and heat sensors, uh, I understand, on some of them for that matter, and uh, that could come into play uh, in terms of uh, the sheep farmers that you talk uh, about, particularly if there's dogs worrying them, or if uh, there's foxes in the area, if they go to ground, uh, perhaps they can be detected by these machines. Yeah, that's that's what we're what we're hearing. That it, it it takes an awful lot of of the the walking out of it and and searching stuff like that, you know. And I suppose as farmers, you know, we have to take advantage of all the new technology and and uh, you know what comes in front of us. Take advantage of it and you know hopefully outweigh the the negatives of it. Like as I said earlier, you know, it was raised with us last year concerned mm-hmm. of people that was that was happened to identify or know his drones around our farm and then. Shortly after the next week or so, they were, they were, you know, their farm was robbed and those stuff stolen off them. So, you know, that's where I think the legislation has to come in. You know, at the moment, uh, it's only if you have a drone uh, over one kilo weight, you have to register with the with the aviation authority. And you know, even at that, there's really nobody to police it. So, you know, while we need farmers to have access to it and to use it. You know, the privacy of your own farm and people sending drones, we say, from a half a mile away in and scanning out your farm, there has to be regulated mm. regulations to, to make sure that that doesn't happen. All right. And uh, it's one thing uh, having one of these machines uh, that you use in the course of your work uh, and fly over your own land. But uh, as you say, it's another thing when somebody flies one over your land uh, and they've nothing to do with you, your family or your business uh, for that matter. And uh, there is this concern that people have. I was talking to James Lawless, as I mentioned yesterday, the Finnefall TD, who's introduced uh, this bill which would regulate the use of these machines. Uh, and he was saying it's a grey area at the moment moment as things stand if one of these things fly over your land uh, as to whether you can shoot them down what advice would you have to people because a lot of people would just say i'd like to blow it out of the sky well because we were some of our members said that to us last year if a drone comes over your yep. farm just blow it out of the sky because i can't comment on that at all we can't you know, I don't agree with, with firearms of any kind on any farm. Mm. You know, and and look, that's a dangerous. Well, a lot of people would have a shotgun and that sort of thing. Yeah, they? yeah, mm-hmm. I know, I know, I know that, I know that. Mm. And look, I can't, I can't condone that either. But, mm. but 
you know, I'd rather it was regulated than farmers had to take action themselves. You know, like it is a very grey area. You, I know you can't run a drone, but the le- regulation is within five kilometres mm. of, a, of a, an airport or aerodrome, or you can't. You're not allowed to fl- fly over uh, urban areas. Mm. But there is nothing. I believe there is no regulation to stop me or flying over my neighbour's farm or vice versa or yeah. someone down the road just deciding to fly over and 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 and, and around. Mm. But look at that. But it, that it's is, mad, isn't it? I, I, I mean, is. if you were to ring up the guards today and say, look, there was a, a fella floating around, don't know where he came from, uh, about six foot, wearing a, a, an orange raincoat, looking in all of the windows of the house and then seemed to be down yeah. at the sheds and whatever. And you'd expect that the guards would take the call seriously and maybe watch out for this fella if they come across and maybe stop him and talk to him or whatever. I don't know if that's a reasonable expectation or not, but that would be my expectation. But I wouldn't expect them to do anything if I rang and said there was something flying over a few moments ago. I can't really describe it except that it was this small thing. I don't know if there was cameras on it or who it belongs to. Yeah, and I know that. Uh, yeah, I think. Look, I'm not running down mm-hmm. the yards, but I think they'd, they'd laugh at and say it's probably yeah. kids. Probably kids got from from for Christmas or whatever. Mm. And that's that's the the very a very dangerous area. Well, and in even, the meantime, somebody could be casing the. Well, that's that's exactly what we've heard from from people. I'd say last early last year, May June last year, yeah. that that. They, were, they reckoned that they were being cased out, that there was mm. probably someone parked a mile away yeah. and it was very, very easy to, to, to send a drone in and see if, if you're at home, see what type of equipment you have, whether you're worth um, looking at late at night or whatever. And that's the concerns that was raised with us. And it was said that a member did say, look, if you see a drone over your farm, shoot it down. And look, I can't mm. disagree with him, but I'm not encouraging people to start that either. Do you know? Yeah. Uh, mm. And it is it is a concern, and I think, you know, even even there is legislation brought in to to for 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 we say over private property businesses etc. God, it's going to be very difficult to to police this because, uh, you know, as you say, you know, you'd want to have a pretty good reason to call the guards when someone was 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 say round the yard or looking at in your windows, but you know, would they take serious a, a, a drone or? You know, would they be out every day of the week looking looking for these drones? And you know, as you've seen with all the with all the technology and 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 investigation in Gatwick and Heathrow, I don't think that any anyone has been charged with anything yet. So you know, for such a major incident, I can't see them coming to deal with a. A normal everyday farm or business. Yeah, very true. All right, Lorcan, we leave it there for the moment and uh, thank you indeed uh, for joining us on the programme. Lorcan McCabe is uh, the Deputy President of the ICMSA, the Irish Creamery Milk Suppliers Association. Michael Reed on LMFM. Let's talk uh, again about uh, the ropey start that there has been to the introduction of uh, the alleged uh, legislation allowing for abortion in this country uh, with Louise O'Reilly, who's Sinn Féin's uh, spokesperson on health. And uh, a very good morning to you and thanks for joining us here on the programme. And I suppose like any new law, it takes time uh, for it to to bed in. But uh, as things stand, 
Uh, what would you be advising somebody today who's uh, thinking about terminating a, a pregnancy? Uh, would they be as well off going to England, as somebody said to me the other day, between the concerns that the obstetricians and the gynaecologists have, uh, how abortion services weren't uh, available in uh, the most of uh, the maternity hospitals? Uh, I see this morning uh, that they are to some level now. Uh, but there's also been these protests, uh, these uh, rogue agencies setting up uh, online uh, and uh, purporting to be uh, the official uh, body which is uh, advising on all of this. Uh, It's uh, certainly been contentious, uh, but uh, has it uh, been dangerous? I don't believe it's dangerous, no. And and, uh, certainly talking to to doctors and consultants, they're not saying that it's dangerous. But um, as to your question, what would I advise? Uh, I would advise that woman to log on to www.myoptions.ie, which is the HSE site, uh, or to ring the helpline and uh, to discuss her options there and then to make an appointment with the doctor if she has made up her mind uh, to avail of the service. And what if I she goes to the doctor and there's somebody outside accusing her of murder? Well, I, I think, you know, this is the problem that we have because myself and others had advocated when the legislation was being debated that we should have included a section on safe zones. And uh, the minister indicated to us that he was going to bring forward his own legislation early in the new year. So if that's, the ball is in the minister's court on this. He needs to be as good as his word. He needs to bring forward that legislation to ensure protection. But we know that there are 217 GPs and that figure is rising every day. I spoke to you on the day the service mm. started, Michael, and there was only 100, I think it was 160. That's risen to 217. And we know that that figure is rising every day. Mm. Now, we also know that there have been a very tiny amount of protests protesters that are standing outside of doctors' surgeries. Um, they've got an awful lot of attention. They're not standing 217. Yeah. They have got a lot of attention, um, which I think is, they've got a disproportionate amount of attention, actually, mm. let's be honest, because uh, there's a handful of them, very tiny numbers. Mm. Well, that's they're, it, not, they were, so, they're not disrupting anything much at all, as I know mm. that that's what they want to do. Well, we, we went to great lengths to make the point that there were just seven that. people standing outside of our, our Lady of Lourdes Hospital and got their photograph in all of the national newspapers, along with the extensive coverage. Now, that may lead to further protest. Uh, And we heard from the Life Institute yesterday, and uh, speaking to them, I think the impression that I would get is that if the Minister does introduce legislation uh, allowing for safe zones or exclusion zones or buffer zones or whatever you want to call this, uh, that there'll be a constitutional challenge uh, because of the constitutional right to protest. Yeah, and the Life Institute are very good at challenging everything. But, you know, they challenged the Irish people back on the 25th of May uh, to support the retention of the Eighth Amendment and the Irish people mm. very firmly backed the legislation and they very firmly backed the repeal of the Eighth Amendment. So, you know, I would take what the Life Institute say with a grain of salt. It's up to them if they want to take a, a legal seems a challenge. Good argument. Do it that. does seem a good argument. If you have a constitutional right to protest and then you're going to ban protest, uh, well, surely... Well, no, but uh, hang on a second, Michael. That right has to be balanced with the right of a woman to access a legally available service. So, it's, mm. uh, you know, I mean, th- this is an argument that won't take place in a vacuum. This is not simply about the right to protest, which I absolutely respect and defend. This is about defending a woman's right to access a service that is legally and lawfully available in this state. Mm. But you're not, you're not blocking that access by standing, as we saw, those people were very peaceful in how they went about the protest uh, uh, and I'm sure they didn't approach anybody. They stood there with those signs. Uh, there was uh, questionable, uh, I'm sure, uh, as those signs were. Uh, they weren't blocking anybody from entering the hospital. 
And indeed, and if we move them even further away from the front entrance, they won't be blocking anyone anyway. I'm not trying to uh, interfere with anyone's right to protest or state their opinion. Mm. But we also have to ensure that women can safely access these services. Now, if we look abroad and we look to other countries, we can see that sometimes uh, there is harassment of women, that sometimes there is, uh, there is in some instances, violence. And we need to protect Irish women from that because that's, mm. not, that's not uh, what people voted for in May. That's not what the legislation says. So the safe zones are not about hindering a person's right to protest. They're about ensuring that the woman has access to the service in an unhindered yeah. and unfettered way, free from harassment. I think most people... Will, free I, from I think judge, most, judgment. I think think most people... Know? Yeah, well, I think most people would, would agree with you that if that's the law, well, then you shouldn't be intimidated or anybody else going into the hospital, whether that's uh, somebody uh, who's got a, a broken leg or a child that's going in with them. But having said that, there's this... Uh, legal argument, constitutional argument, and if uh, you're going to introduce uh, a ban on protesting outside of hospitals or somewhere else, uh, well then, where does that stop? I mean, could it result in people being prohibited from protesting outside of Leinster House? Well, I think what we need to be well, what we need to be looking at though is ensuring that there is safe access for women for services. So take it take it away from mm. the issue of protest and focus on the woman. I mean, if you remember. During the referendum campaign, you know, many people said at the time, women have to be at the centre of this legislation. We need to trust women. So if women are going to be at the centre of the legislation on access to determination, they have to be at the centre of the legislation. What about safe access to Leicester House for politicians? Uh, that's guaranteed. Well, I mean, I've never I mean, had I, uh, going in and out. No, but I'll answer the question. Yeah. I've never had an issue going in and out of Leinster House when there have been protests there. I have been, uh, I've been heckled. I've been shouted at uh, by anti-choice protesters on more than one occasion. That doesn't bother me. Yeah. But having said that, I have access to my workplace. I can come and go, and and that isn't that isn't a difficulty. Well, what's the difference? Before, I mean, if somebody stands outside Leinster House with a, a placard saying "Politicians murder babies because of the abortion legislation," what's the difference they, between they, them they doing do, that? Michael, they do stand. Yeah, but but but, you, but, but I know they do. But 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 what's the difference I between think, them standing outside Leinster House uh, and a hospital? Because there's nobody going into Leinster House to access a legal uh, a legal health service. There's nobody going into Leinster House to access healthcare. So what I'm saying is what we need to do is ensure that Mm. women have safe access to hospitals, safe access to doctors. I I agree with you. I'm just not sure that the the courts would see it that way. And, you know, that's up to us to make sure that the legislation is fit for purpose. What's regrettable is that it wasn't done in tandem with the termination of pregnancy legislation that went through before Christmas, because I said Mm. it to the minister and others said it to the minister. This is very predictable. I mean, the pro-life movement or the anti-choice movement, whatever you want to call them, here in this state, they're not reinvent, they're they're not, uh, you know, they're not writing a new playbook. They're straight out of the playbook of the pro-life movement in America and Mm. in other places. They're replicating what they do. There's nothing new in these tactics. Okay, but there's, what, nothing, there's nothing innovative in it, so we could predict what was going to happen. We could sure. see what was going to happen, and we told the minister. Unfortunately, he didn't act. I'm hoping he will act very, very soon. And another area of contention was conscientious uh, objection, and we're told by uh, the gynaecologists and the obstetricians that this is one of uh, the problems now in delivering a safe service in hospitals because uh, they work in multidisciplinary teams. And not all of the members of the team want to participate in the termination of pregnancies. Uh, What do you do about that? 
Well, the right to conscientious objection um, is is in the the guidelines, is in mm. the, the code of medical ethics. It's in the uh, it's in the guidelines and the code for nurses and midwives. So, absolutely. Uh, the, the right to conscientious objection can and will be protected. But that means that we need to have, uh, we need to ensure that the, the rosters are in place that can deliver the service. Again, this, the, the focus needs to be on delivering the but service. But that'll take some time, it, won't it? I think it might. I think it mm. might. You see, there's another argument and there's another issue here. And this is one which I have, and I've spoken to you about this on a number of mm. occasions, Michael, I know, and I've spoken to the minister, I don't know how many times about yeah. it, is we have a recruitment and retention crisis within the health service. So every single part of service delivery is operating uh, is operating mm. short. We don't have enough staff to deliver any of the services. Okay, but when you talk about rosters, what, what, what do you do, just uh, to try and put it into context, if you have a midwife, for example, who's happy to deliver babies but does not want to be involved in the termination of pregnancies? Well, I think that the roster can deal with that to ensure that the, I mean, the services are going to be provided separately. So, you know, I mean, I think it is possible that the, that the, that we can roster for that. However, we do have an issue with regard to retention and recruitment of staff. There are short staff, we're short staffed right across every single hospital and in the community. That's going to have an impact, but that's not just on access to abortion. That's on access to any of the services. Now, that is something that the minister is singularly failing to address and something which he should really take up, um, you know, and, and absolutely work hard to try and address okay. it. I mean, we've repealed the Eighth Amendment, that work is done, the legislation has gone through, but the perennial problems within our health service still remain. And that's up to Simon Harris now to get a grip on that and to try and avert this nurses' strike that's coming and also uh, to try and improve our recruitment and retention rates within the health service. But that's right across mm. the board. That's not just for access to abortion, that's for access to every single service within our uh, okay. within our health service. There's waiting lists and the Minister is aware of this. All right, no doubt we'll come back and talk about some of those problems in the next three weeks before the first strike date. Oh, but we we'll will. There for the moment. <laughs> Thank you as always for joining Thanks, us Michael. this morning. That's Louise O'Reilly, Sinn Féin's spokesperson on health. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. Let's find out what you've been saying to us. Marie Kearns uh, joins us with some of uh, the calls and text messages that have been coming to us this morning. Good morning to you, Marie. Good morning, Michael, and to all our listeners. John from the Drogheda area was first off the mark this morning and he phoned in because he was unhappy with the interview with Jim Wells on the radio. He says, why is LMFM bringing him on? He is calling our nation a foreign nation. I think he's a disgrace and he shouldn't be allowed to come on our local radio station and say that. Well, I don't think there's any point in letting on that Jim Wells or other people don't exist. The DUP, I suppose that's the answer. Yeah. <laughs> Paul from Dundalk says the DUP have no regard for what a hard Brexit would do to both the Republic of Ireland and the North of Ireland and that they don't seem to care. Your guest, Mr Wells, described the backstop as to- toxic. Well, Michael, I'd call the DUP toxic, mm. says Paul. Well, Jim Wells says he does care what happens. The last thing he wants is a hard Brexit and uh, WTO rules. Uh, but... Uh, I don't think it actually is the last thing he wants. I think the last thing he wants is a united Ireland and he, he says uh, that the backstop is a, a first step to a united Ireland. Tony Andrada texted in, wonder why Jim Wells keeps repeating the assertion they are not stupid. Mm, because he obviously feels uh, that people are trying to make a fool out of them. 
So that was his text. Moving mm-hmm. on then to drones. Uh, Grania from Drogheda was listening in to your interview yeah. and says it's all very well for those who have a shotgun mm. and can shoot down a drone. But what about those of us who don't, Michael? Mm. What choice do we have? There's nothing we can do. And it's not right, especially if you think that someone is casing your property mm. to rob it. Yeah, I know. What do you do? There's nothing you can mm. do. Yeah. Uh, on abortion... Anne from Navin says, does the low take up by GPs to provide abortion services not worry your guest and other politicians? There are some parts of the country where no GP is providing the service. Why would it worry people? I'm not sure I understand that. Uh, And uh, I'm not sure what the uh, uptake has been. I know that there was uh, about uh, 20 inquiries in the first day after that. I'm not sure what uh, level uh, of interest there has been in people uh, contacting the service looking for a termination. German says that he can't believe Louise O'Reilly of Sinn Féin is telling people that they are not now entitled to protest, even though that right is in our constitution. I don't agree with what these people are protesting about. I voted in favour of abortion, but I I do believe that they should Mm. not be prevented from protesting. I'm sure that there have been protests at times at the clinics in England, Mm. says Dermot. Oh, I'm sure there has, yeah. And uh, I don't think she's saying that people shouldn't protest. It's where they protest and uh, that the right to access a health service should supersede the right to protest in terms of the venue. Betty from Alahide wants to know, will there be a restriction on how many abortions that a woman is allowed to have or will it be that she can have as many as she wants? Yeah, and she can have as many as she wants, as I understand it, yes. I also had a text in from a listener in response to your interview with Neve from the Life Institute, Michael, mm. earlier in the week. And she says, that woman talks about options. She's a joke. If a woman was raped and get pregnant, she didn't have an option. If a woman knows that the fetus is growing in her, risking her health and life, she doesn't have any other option. If a woman knows knows what if that a fetus will die preterm making her go into labor is simply cruel okay Teresa from Kells phoned in just thinking maybe I'm wrong but if the money spent on getting this abortion issue legal was spent on trolleys in hospitals and on nurses who are trying to get a decent wage it might have been better okay for some, I'm sure, yes. Moving then to the topic that's been dominating the, the phone lines most of the week, Michael, mm-hmm. the, this proposal to change the name of Our Lady of Lourdes Hospital. Okay. I'm just going to try and get mm. through the mountain of comments, or some of them at least. And one of them is an email. Remember, I, I didn't have time oh, to yeah, read it yeah. out. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. 
PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Yesterday, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. that Eugene took the time to send in. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I'll go through that if I can. I would like to complain most strongly at the appalling display on the Michael Reed show on Monday and Wednesday that completely destroyed the basis of any discussion that everyone has right to their point of view and must be respected and not shouted down and sneered at. After listening to the show on Monday, once again Michael shows that he is incapable of presenting an impartial show. He stated quite clearly in a number of times that he was in favour of a name change and this is in clear breach of the rules of broadcasting. His belligerent and bullying ways of conducting an interview, in his opinion, is the way to go. But rules of impartiality must be adhered to. Otherwise, LMFM is like his, uh, his own private station to promote his views. In recent times, presenters have been sanctioned and even removed for this type of behaviour. This is not the first time Michael has crossed the line and behaved like this. And without being checked, it won't be the last. Just to clarify my position, Michael, I'm a Catholic and mm-hmm. not ashamed of it. Mm-hmm. Like Michael seems to think we should be. I have seen both sides of the Lord's Hospital, good and bad, and I'm not affiliated to any political party or group. And in my view, changing the name won't solve the day-to-day problems, big and small, of the hospital. Okay. And that comes in from Eugene. All right. uh, Well, I'm confused uh, about uh, the point that's made there about Catholics uh, I don't think I've ever criticised anybody for their faith and I would hope that would never be the case uh, and uh, I have heard a number of people say uh, that they're very concerned uh, that I, I said uh, that uh, the hospital uh, should change its name and I think I probably did say that and I hope I clarified it on Wednesday to mean that what I feel is that there's very strong ans- uh, arguments being made uh, in respect of changing the name of the hospital. Personally speaking, my own personal view is I don't mind what they call the hospital uh, but I have been hearing from people who have been patients in that hospital, perfectly healthy patients who went to the hospital to have their babies in particular uh, who who came out uh, and their lives were changed for the worse because of a very bad experience who want the hospital changed. Uh, and I was saying that that's one of a, a number of reasons that uh, you might want to change the name of the hospital. This is for people to consider themselves. Uh, I don't even think it matters what my personal view is, but I, I don't have a, a view. I'd be quite happy to go to the hospital as I did before, uh, whether it's called Our Lady of Lourdes or not. I, uh, I've complimented the staff at the hospital and the great treatment I got there in Our Lady of Lourdes and if I had to go again and it was called Our Lady of Lourdes I'd be quite happy as well but there's the people who have been hurt in the hospital people who have made allegations against several doctors including Michael Neary Jared Connolly and Michael Shine Uh, some of uh, those people uh, have memories associated with the name Uh, there's also uh, the idea that the nuns themselves don't want it to be called Our Lady of Lourdes because of uh, the abortion uh, uh, services that are being provided there at the moment Uh, there's uh, the pluralist idea that it's a hospital that is to serve people of all faiths uh, and uh, from not just uh, Drogheda and uh, there are some other arguments and then there's uh, the sentimental uh, argument that is being made uh, in terms of the identity of Drogheda and that people have generally associated Our Lady of Lourdes Hospital with the town. 
Okay. Well, I'll just go to a couple of more on the same topic if I can. Anthony mm-hmm. from RD says, one or two quick points about your arguments with regards to the hospital. Number one, a simple name change will not clear its entire history to anyone researching it for a career position. And number two, if what you say is correct, that it is preventing recruitment, well, the representative of the nurses blames pay entirely for the lack of recruitment, which I think is a cynical excuse for a pay claim, by the way, says Anthony. Okay. Uh, my oh no, Peter from Dundalk phoned in, says he has been listening to the various discussions uh, in relation to the name change of Our Lady of Lourdes uh, Hospital. And he feels, Michael, that you're just stirring things up on the radio. Uh, you say that you're speaking for minorities. So mm. when uh, so when do we start to we stop changing things in this country to suit minorities? I think he knows well that there is an overwhelming uh, position against changing Our Lady of Laura's name. I'm from Dundalk and anybody I've spoken to at Dundalk thinks it's mad. I think Michael knows himself he's trying to stir things up. It's nothing to do with the nuns, what the staff members mm. did. So get off your hobby horse and stop stirring. Uh, you're actually insulting people at this stage, says mm. Peter. All right, well, that's a, a fair comment and uh, I can understand people listening thinking that and I, I'd hate to ever be guilty of that. I do listen to people on the radio and I turn them straight off when I think they're stirring it just for the sake of stirring it and trying to get reaction or get a name for themselves or whatever it is. I think there's nothing worse, to be honest, uh, and I'd hate to be guilty of that. But I, I, I have spoken to some people who feel that they can't speak for themselves uh, who uh, have made their views known to me and I've made those views known I think uh, it would seem at least pretty clearly and people have heard them. Okay, Um, Michael. Well, I think we'll park it there at the moment and maybe finish on that one for the time being because I'm sure we probably will be hearing more (laughs) until a decision is made one way or the other. All right. Thanks uh, for that, uh, Marie, and uh, thanks to everybody who has been in touch with us. If you'd like to add to what's been said, as always, we would love to hear from you and our telephone number is 1850-715-958. Michael Reed on LMFM. New legislation on domestic violence, including a new offence of coercive abuse, came into force at the beginning of this year. Yesterday, however, the Association of Garda Sergeants and Inspectors voiced their deep concern because they have had, haven't had any training in relation to this legislation, Nolene Blackwell of the Dublin Rape Rape Crisis Centre has been outlining why this is important. They're the people who are responsible really for managing the day-to-day caseloads. And as we've seen all too sadly already this year, uh, domestic violence is an everyday occurrence. So when when the Gardaí are there, they're going to be asked to investigate this and they do need to know the law and how to apply it. And the Domestic Violence Act, which came into force right at the beginning of the year, is a really important piece of legislation. It draws together a lot of the other legislation we had and it extends it so that it increases. There's a new crime uh, called coercive control, which is really I suppose Mm. complicated, but an important new development. But in addition to that, even at the level of law that was there already, there is now new ways in which somebody in immediate danger can get a barring order. And there are ways in which people who are, say, dating can get Mm. safety orders. So the guards really need to know their law. So even if you're not living with somebody, you can get a, a safety order? You can get a safety order if you're dating them or if you're in some sort of a relationship with them. So these are all 
these are all things that need to be reported to the guards. Anyone in danger should still report to the guards. But where the guards don't have the training that they need, they are not going to be able to investigate it mm. as well as they otherwise would. Now, in fairness to uh, to the Gardaí at headquarters and in the Protective Services Bureau, which is a national office, the work have, some work has been done. All Gardaí have been notified. It goes out onto their internal website with the main details and the main changes. But the sergeants and inspectors are 100% right. You need to know this law well in order to investigate it properly and in order to ensure that the correct evidence is brought so that somebody can be brought to, to a prosecution if necessary yeah. or that the evidence can be given even if it doesn't go to the criminal courts even if it's going to the family law courts that the guards have the proper evidence for that but most of all for the safety of victims. If you were and to provide the training though Nolene uh, how would you set a, a, about it uh, because it seems to me that uh, if somebody claims uh, they were assaulted and they've a black guy, let's say, uh, well, somebody could say, well, she walked into doors. Uh, if uh, something happened yeah. in the bedroom, uh, somebody could say, well, it was consensual. Uh, but if somebody is to call a guard station in the morning and say, he's wrecking my head, how do you respond yes. to that? Yes. So, so this is something that will be built up over time and people will have to uh, get used to how to collect evidence in this particular way. I think that all of those instances, Michael, all of those mm. have changed since the new legislation came into place. So the guards need to know what the law is, they need to be able to read it, they need to be able to understand it, and then they need to be able to apply it. Because something you and I would have discussed before, and that, well, we're forever saying it, is that this kind of intimate violence, domestic violence, sexual violence, these things which take place in hidden places, in homes, in places where often there's a relationship between people where there are children, you cannot investigate it in the same way as you investigate the theft of a car because you need to go about it differently. Very often in these situations, there is abuse going on on a regular basis. Guards need to be careful about how they investigate it so that more harm isn't done to the victim mm. or other people and more, and more care is needed in the investigation. Now, this is not news to the guards. This isn't the Dublin Rape Crisis Centre or the Domestic mm. Violence Services saying this. The guards themselves agree that this kind of intimate violence requires a special type of approach to investigation and to collection of evidence and to protection of people in their communities. Um, And so that's why the training is so important. And the sergeants and inspectors are right and the guardi are right. Proper training is needed. Some, a little, it has started. But it's Mm. a pity that it kind of started at about the time the legislation came in. You need to have the the Gardaí trained Mm. properly before the legislation comes in. It's like a whole lot of other things. The law is necessary. It's most important to have good laws there. But unless the laws can be implemented well, it is a waste of time because Mm. they won't work. And so that implementation, that training, which the Gardaí at headquarters they have started and which the sergeants and inspectors have not received, that has to happen and it has to be a priority in order to make the law effective. But more importantly, 
more importantly than anything else, mm. to ensure that when somebody does report into the guards, who are our guards, they're our community people, when somebody reports in that mm. there have been an incident of domestic violence, when they say we are in danger, we need a barring order, that without further ado, that the guards are able to take the measures that are needed in order to protect the victim. And if they don't know the law, and if they don't know how to apply it, they won't be able to do that. So that training mm. is an absolute priority. Oddly enough, and Garda Headquarters statement uh, said uh, that the training uh, can't uh, begin until the legislation has been uh, formally commenced uh, and that training will be provided later uh, and that, uh, as things stand, members of Angarda Corner are advised uh, to look at uh, the information that's available to them yeah. on the Garda web portal. Uh, yeah. Has that been remiss of government, of the Minister of the Department? Well, this is this is an internal Garda matter. I, I, I have to say, this is, this is a matter for Garda management. That's like, again, an awful lot of us come across that situation mm. every, every so often. You know something is coming down the tracks. You don't know exactly when. You have to make preparations. I actually think that's not a good enough answer because the, the truth is the legislation is there the people who are to implement the legislation are not equipped to mm. do it. That is um, a flaw on the part of guard the management, and it puts people at risk. So, therefore, I would say I would say much more. The guide needed to know. They needed to know that it was going to be commenced at the beginning of January. All of these issues that I'm talking about: emergency barring orders, mm. safety orders for dating couples, the new offensive coercive control. All of these are in place for the past now nearly two weeks. And the coercive control is going to be a slow burner because mm-hmm. it's a new legislation. But there, it, it, would, it would be unconscionable that this weekend someone would need an emergency barring order and wouldn't be able to get it because the guy that to whom it is reported wasn't able to put, didn't know enough about the law, didn't mm-hmm. know how to put it in place. And, and so there are some of the strands uh, to this legislation. We're talking about this uh, this morning, Nolan Blackwell, because of uh, the concerns of uh, the sergeants and inspectors in policing that law. But there are other strands to this. Uh, and uh, if uh, the guards haven't received training, are there other concerns? Uh, because uh, there's elements in this legislation uh, that uh, apply to the court service and indeed to media reporting. Yes. So in terms of uh, other aspects, other ag- every single agency needs to know how to implement laws that affect them. These are, these are government agencies. In term- as, well, the media aren't, but the court service are government agencies. In, in a sense, I know that the passage of the legislation was reasonably slow to give all of these agencies the time that they needed to ensure that they would be able to do it. Uh, so, so in a sense, we did not, this is not a piece of legislation that started one day and was finished a week later. In fact, it went through very slowly as all of the agencies involved were uh, informed and were consulted mm. to ensure that they were able to put the systems in place. So there are things like, like there are for sexual offences as well now, new sexual offences. Mm. There, um, there are ways about the ways in which witnesses can give evidence. The courts should be geared up for those. 
they're not properly geared up for them, but they're making their efforts to do it as well. So even though you may be entitled to give evidence by video link, the court may not have uh, the equipment in place, is it? Yes, and and I think that the way they'll have to get around that is have to make people go further than they otherwise would to give evidence Mm. somewhere else. Exactly. So that even the screens, but they're, they're, they're going, they know about all of this for a good while. And I suppose the, the way we would say that all agencies really need to look at it, I would be inclined to come back to this again in mm. maybe two weeks' time. Mm. Just see what progress has been made. And see how ensured. it gets in, yes. Uh, and you may be busier in two weeks' time uh, because uh, part of this is that the court service uh, would offer information uh, on support services. Uh, yes. If somebody is in court, they may be referred to Women's Aid or the Dublin Rape Price Centre, depending on the crime against exactly. them. Exactly. Um, and that's actually part of people's entitlements for mm. about the past year as well. And in uh, to give credit where it is due, all of the agencies are becoming much better at understanding their obligations around that. And we have started to see people who are saying, um, I did get a referral from the guy in relation to coming to maybe make a phone call onto the helpline or uh, to come and talk to us. But again, if, if, we, if, if those agencies are looking at the protection of the victims of very serious harms and mm. crimes first, then there will need to be much, much more of this. And the other, the other issue that needs to be developed is that this is, this is definitely a specialised area of investigation and prosecution. Mm. And and one of the things that the guards themselves have identified is the need to ensure that there are specialist units in every single Garda division across the country. There are 28 Garda divisions. There are units in four of the 28. We are told that another six are up and running this month, but we have seen no evidence of that. We've heard no announcement about these protective services units we need more of these. What they do is they provide kind of a centre of excellence in every division. And, and people who truly know what is uh, the, the law and what's the practice and how to de- deal with these delicate cases. So we really need to roll that out mm. much faster okay. as well. I, ironic, ironically, I did see a, a notice uh, in respect of one of those centres opening in Louth, and we'll give the details of that in a, a moment. Uh, but can I ask you about your helpline, Nolene? Because um, I know that people can call you if uh, they've been victim of a, a sexual assault, uh, whether that's something that happened to them many years ago as a child or yeah. in recent days or months, or if uh, perhaps uh, they're considering what action to take on foot of that. But in terms of this new legislation, if the guards are finding it difficult to understand something like coercive uh, behaviour or psychological uh, abuse, uh, well, uh, is that something that you can advise people on on the helpline? Yeah, so so we certainly, we come across it the whole time. So mainly our helpline is focused on sexual violence. But what is really interesting is how many people come on because they feel uncomfortable unhappy with uh, the way that they're being treated by a partner or somebody they've met. And it's perfectly clear that what's happening is abusive behaviour. Some of this abusive behaviour will now more easily be seen as coercive control, as a pattern of behaviour whereby somebody is 
coercing somebody else, is manipulating them in a way that is damaging them and putting them in fear. So now for on our helpline, we, we don't give legal advice as such over the helpline. You know, that's a matter for lawyers. But we will now be able to direct people more clearly in to, uh, to, to whatever support they need in order to understand what they're doing. We don't report things to the guards. Ours is a confidential helpline. But we may be able to allow people to see more clearly uh, the pattern of control so that they themselves can report. We would often, too, in domestic violence situations, refer people to Women's Aid to run the domestic violence helpline. And I might give you both numbers, Michael, yes, before, the, do, yes. uh, before the end of this session, because it's just a question of, I suppose, in these areas where somebody is being amused, abused and manipulated psychologically, financially, emotionally, physically, sexually, all of these, they tend to be a pattern. You Mm. tend not to find people just being abused in one way, but it can be across several ways. So it is a question of people understanding that themselves, first of all, because that's key to reporting and being able to say it. Because when you think about it, it's very hard for anybody to say, this person whom I've trusted and loved, and perhaps with whom I've had children, is abusing me. So that's, I suppose, at the level of the helpline. This is where we like to help people and then give them directions towards the practical support that they need in order to to help them to be more empowered to get on with their own lives. I think that's kind mm-hmm. of a lot of the purpose of the helpline. Okay. And then we have other supports as well. But people, people should know it's not all right. Uh, to be uh, to be told uh, to, to to have their lives controlled, uh, to be in fear that if they don't do what their partner wants, that it is going uh, to result in repercussions for themselves or their children. They need to know that that's wrong, and now they need to know that it is criminal behaviour if it builds up over a period of time. If there's a pattern there, putting them in fear. So so. People need to know that mm-hmm. themselves, but most of all, indeed, our Gardaí need to know that. And there is advice and help at hand. You have two telephone numbers, Nolene, you said? All right. All right. So I'll give you the domestic violence one first, given that this is mostly about mm. domestic violence, of which sexual violence is a part. So Women's Aid run a free phone helpline, uh, 1-800-341-900. And we run a sexual violence helpline. It's a national line, though, run by the Dublin Rape Crisis Centre. And it's a 1-800 number that one eight hundred seventy seven eighty eight eighty eight, and people can contact us at any hour of the day or night, any day of the week. And our conversation couldn't be more timely because uh, I say that the Louth Division Protective Services Unit will be based at Castle Bellingham Garda Station. It opens this morning at eleven a.m. Thank you. Thank you indeed, Nolene Blackwell. Thanks, Michael. Nolene Blackwell is uh, the Chief Executive Officer of the Dublin Rape Crisis Centre. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now let's talk about this fire that we've been hearing about at the Shannon Key West Hotel in Ruski. As you've been hearing, it was due to open as a centre for asylum seekers. That won't happen now. 
uh, because it's been set on fire. Apparently, a window was broken and a number of individuals entered the premises and it's believed uh, that this was most likely a case of arson on grounds of racism. Shane O'Curry is the director of ENAR Ireland, the European Network Against Racism. And a very good morning to you, Shane. And thanks for joining us. It's, it's very hard to conclude otherwise, isn't it? I, 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 you know, without, you know, without a guard investigation, you can yeah. never know for sure. But I would be very surprised if it was anything else. And certainly, given the, given the fact that there were two, um, that there were two similar attacks on the on the on the hotel earmarked to become a direct provision centre in Moville in County Donegal, mm. it would surprise me very much that this isn't. Um, this wasn't a calculated and premeditated um, attempt, and as you say, it was a it was a racist arson attack. So it's a, it's it's you know what is called a hate crime. It was a crime motivated by racial prejudice against the uh, asylum seekers and refugees who were going to reside in the place. So it's it's pretty mm. appalling. And I think there was a lot of concern locally uh, from what I've been hearing and understandably quite possibly because of the size of Ruski and how this facility would uh, be transformed into a direct provision centre. But, I mean, there's limits to everything, isn't there? Isn't it hard to believe that somebody would feel that strongly about it, that they would be filled with so much hate that they would set about burning the building down? Yeah, so I think so. We think that this is that this is why it sh- it should really go over to the Gardaí to conduct a full investigation into mm. who who did this and who's behind this. And uh, you know, is this uh, is this the beginning of a pattern? Is this connected to the Moville attack? And uh, are you know who you know who are the people that are making noise behind this? And yeah. uh, who who is inciting this? Um, and even is there is there a level of organisation behind this? Because if this is the case, then it's something very sinister, and it needs to be, it really needs to be nipped in the bud. And you know, one of the things that uh, our state really needs uh, in its arsenal for dealing with with things like that is proper hate crime legislation uh, uh-huh. as part of a, a wider package of, of of measures for our ability to maintain uh, a, an inclusive. Um, uh, and you know, in multicultural society, it's uh, it, it's just not good enough that violence like this uh, can 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 go ahead mm. uh, unpunished and unchallenged. Um, so, I would indeed, be, I think the European Network Against yeah. Racism has been calling for hate crime legislation to be introduced uh, for as long as people have been coming into this country looking for asylum, and probably since before then. Uh, but for reasons less sinister than this, is it your suspicion that this is a, a concerted, organised effort to stop people being accommodated in this way? Um, I, I, I mean, I think that that's you know what at, at face value that would that would appear to be the message. You know, the message no. that these people are are appearing to convey is that if you attempt, if you you know if you say you're going to open a a, a, a center, then mm. we're going to stop you by breaking the law through an act of violence and by endangering people's lives. But I do mean, you believe there's a group? Uh, I. I don't know. I mean, I know that there are groups who are rubbing their hands at this, and I know that um, you know the you know obviously the context is that the the you know far you know far right far right groups uh, are are gaining traction in Europe, and we're having the Trump effect in the U.S. and the Brexit effect in the U.K. And I know that some figures mm. 
uh, connected to violent paramilitary loyalism have been in Ireland. Uh, and they're certainly um, uh, congratulating themselves uh, because they are they're drawing the connection between themselves to this. So, have, know, we to stage, the, uh, have we got to that stage? Have we got a national front type group uh, in this uh, country, a white supremacist type of group? I don't think that they have the numbers to mobilise popularly. And I think for mm. reasons of, of, of Irish history, uh, there won't be a lot of, you know, people in Ireland, you know, won't go along with with that type of politics, you mm. know, simply because we've been, you know, Irish people have been on the the ugly end oh, of uh, of British nationalism in, in its various iterations. Mm. And, you know, this is that's something that's very much associated with it. And it's something that, that the far right will never be able to shake off in Ireland is its close close association with violent loyalism. Um, but on the other hand, they are uh, they, it, 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 it could be something organised clandestinely and, and sinisterly. Uh, so I don't know if they are. Uh, I don't know that they have the capacity to mobilise beyond uh, you know a couple of dozen uh, diehard. Mm. Um, zealots but um, uh, into anything that resembling a popular movement but but, I mean um, a a couple of dozen skinheads could do a a, a lot of damage as we've seen in the past which is why we need you know which is why Unguarded Sheer Collar really need to investigate this thoroughly and and, you know look at the broader picture and see is there a pattern uh, and but also, you know, use our existing incitement to hatred legislation, which we do have, and see who are the individuals, who are the figures, uh, who are the figures in politics, who are the figures in on the, you know on the fringes of the political scene, the people uh, on the fringes of the media who are making iterations that uh, draw attention to and uh, set up asylum seekers for this type of violence against them. If there's not a lot of support for this type of action, is there implied support for this type of thinking? Uh, because people in this country generally uh, don't like loyalist paramilitaries or Nazis or skinheads or whatever the case may be, but they'll also tell you that they come over here and they take our jobs and uh, they get all the benefits. And you hear, hear that type of criticism and fear, and people will, on the other hand, tell you they're not racist, but they'd be opposed to a lot of uh, the things that are happening in this country. I, 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 think that a, I think that a small number of people, I mean a small but not insignificant number of people, is, or, like, or a large minority, to put it another way, of people mm. are susceptible to having those kinds of anxieties. Um, I think that recent opinion polls show that actually most Irish people uh, don't feel that way about migrants and refugees and asylum seekers. And in fact, most people people see that uh, migration is beneficial, inward migration to Ireland is beneficial, and that migrants bring diversity and skills, and they bring their work. So they, you know, so they their work contributes to the economy. Mm. Um, so I and, uh, and and I think people understand that that it's not a zero sum game. That when people come here, they're not taking jobs because they're cre- they're they're expanding the economy and they're actually good for jobs. And we need them. I mean, all, you know, all kinds of sectors are crying out for labour. So it's not it's it's not really it, it's not really that case. And I think most people understand that, mm. and most people understand that you know. The, you know, the USA is the, the wealthiest country in the world because it was a country of massive network inward migration over centuries. So it it's you know it it can only be it can only be good for an economy. Now, on the uh, you know on the other hand, there are, there is a small minority of people who are at the brunt 
end of inequality and poverty. And I think it, so. It, it is so. It's you know to discussions about inequality that we need to address ourselves, and we need to address the massive wealth inequality in our country. We need to address the housing and homelessness mm. crisis. You know, with great urgency, and we need to address. Um, you know, we we need to address the the, the crisis in the health system. Yeah, um, and I, I mean, these are quite often issues yeah. uh, that are, are brought up uh, to speak out against people coming to this country. You know, we yeah. have our own homeless problem, uh, and why are we yeah. giving these people somewhere to stay? And undoubtedly, it's because uh, they're some of the most vulnerable people in the world, uh, and just to move on from that for the people who support that idea that uh, you're professing to us uh, this morning are there other questions to be asked about this Uh, because I I mean surely it is legitimate to ask about how government sets about planning to accommodate people in this country and if it is appropriate to change the face of a a small village by bringing so many people of a a different culture and tradition into it uh, and all of the challenges that that pose and should we set about this in terms of planning in a, a different way and in a more planned sense so that rather than saying, oh, a hotel has come available, that would be handy, uh, that we could think, well, where do we want to place these people and where would be appropriate for them and the people who are already living there? Well, I think, I, I mean, I think, I, I think that there's something very, very valid in, in the question you raised there. I think that there, it is incumbent on, on the state. Uh, now, you know, it's especially now that it appears to be returning to its previous policy of not just direct provision, but direct provision, uh, uh, dispersion and direct provision, that they're dispersing people around the country. But if you are going to put people in places like Mobile and Ruski, that you need to put in place the infrastructure to, to, um, to support people. And you need to also look at the discredited, uh, you know, very questionable and uh, legally very ambiguous system of direct provision. It's, you know, there's no legislation that provides for direct provision, so it can't be challenged in the courts. And that's the that's the that's the paradox that that we've been in since this so-called temporary measure was brought in in 2001. Um, the the uh, it, you know obviously what in in an ideal scenario. Um, uh, resources would be put in place, and these the, the kind of resources that we're talking about are a drop in the ocean compared to the uh, to the tax cuts, for instance, in 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 the last budget. You know, we, you know, you're talking billions in in, in tax cuts in the, in the last budget, whereas we're talking you know a few million. Um, and you know, same same with resolving the, the housing crisis. I mean, the, the point is the impact of migrants and asylum seekers on questions like housing. Mm-hmm. And, and and more general infrastructure is infinitesimally small, um, and and I think that that's something that people don't understand is is that the, the numbers are are vastly different. Um, so I think that yes, a, 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 a bit of preparation rather than because it's you know it's it's almost I'm not saying that this is by design, but it's almost as if people are being set up for these for the for this kind of thing. Uh, by being put there, these are you know these are people, and these are people who are fleeing violence and war mm-hmm. and innocence, and they're coming into situations where this kind of violence is is happening is 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 ap- is an absolutely appalling scenario. Yeah, um, no doubt. So 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 investment needs to be made and work needs to be done with the communities, and I think that that's that that you know that you know that's a, a major blunder, I would mm-hmm. say, on behalf of uh, of the Department of Justice and of and of RIA in in 
in in in, in doing this in, in a very unthinking way and in cutting corners and trying to do this on a low budget. I think a little bit more investment so that you can mm-hmm. uh so that you can reassure locals so that um so that um uh, and so that people can be uh, so the services can be put in place and so that people can be uh, a- enabled to contribute to the society. But I think the broader question of of the system of direct provision itself needs to be addressed at this point, because this is, again, they're really, you know, we're really pushing direct provision to stretching it to its limits. And it's already been criticized mm-hmm. uh, in innumerable reports. And I think that, you know, looking at how we treat asylum systems, uh, we need to consider other ways of providing for people who are in the asylum uh, in the asylum process okay. um, that that isn't about holding people in these centres in All the right. first place. Shane, I have to leave okay. it there, but thank you very much indeed. For thank you very much, Michael. Morning. Much appreciated. Shane O'Curry, Director of ENAR Ireland, uh, that's uh, the European Network Against Racism. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, just before we wrap up today, let's use uh, the last couple of minutes uh, that we have uh, available to us to return to you. Marie, you've got some more comments for us. Yes, a couple of people have got in touch in relation to drones to give us their opinion. Tony from County Loud says, I don't know what all this hysteria is about drones all of a sudden. The situation at Gatwick is being used to once again take a big brother approach from the government. This is for the most part a leisure activity and I don't know where everyone is seeing all these drones in use. The only one I recall was covering an event legitimately with aerial shots at a beach event. There is no reason to assume that they're there for any sinister reasons other than a leisure activity. And as I understand it, the activity at Gatwick was part of a protest regarding additional runways or something. There is no reason to assume such activity will happen here. And indeed, all this publicity is almost inviting such copycat interference that wouldn't otherwise happen, says Tony. All right, I don't know about that. I've heard uh, from a, a lot of people who have had drones outside of their window and uh, they were very uncomfortable with the idea. Yeah, well, Joanne is one of these. Mm. She says it seems that Santa brought a lot of drones at Christmas time and you'd wonder if young teenagers are responsible enough to have them she says one almost hit the window of my car whilst I was driving she pointed out and was a pains to add that it wasn't intentional Mm. but Mm. it could have been very serious nonetheless well that's a a nuisance uh, and I'm sure it annoys people but it's not uh, as sinister as uh, some of uh, the concerns that people have about how people are casing the place uh, so that they can come back later and rob you Yes, and Jackie makes this point. I I agree with your guest that uh, there are advantages about drones Mm. and can understand how they can assist farmers with their crops and keeping an eye on animals. But that is farmers using the drones over their own property. Mm. Fair enough. Mm. It's where drones from other people are hovering over your property that the intrusion arises. Apart from the security fears, they could be filming you and your family and there has to be issues around this also says Jackie yeah, well that's it uh, there's privacy and uh, security uh, and then uh, the safety of people at places uh, like airports or embassies or whatever the case may be another listener says that what concerns her most about drones is that they could interfere with aircrafts and cause an accident an accident and feels that there needs to be new regulations because mm. of the amount of them at this stage yeah yeah 
uh, Mary says that she agrees. I'm moving on, sorry, from Jones, Michael, and on to the discussion about abortion. Mary says that she agrees with safe zones, especially at offices of GPs that are offering this service. She says that women shouldn't have to be subject to this, especially when they are likely to be suffering already over having to make a decision to have an abortion. And she feels that in their interests that there should be some kind of a zone. So it's amazing how you get the mixed response because we also had another listener who was in touch, Larry. And Larry says that when you start to do away with uh, being able to protest, where does it end then? Do we start, who decides Mm. when you can and cannot protest? And he says, I know it's an emotive subject, but I'm sure there will also be many uh, more emotive issues that people will be objecting and protesting about over the years and in years to come. And he thinks that this will set a dangerous precedent, if you like. Okay, yeah. All right. Well, interesting thoughts. And thanks to everybody who took the time to make contact with us and uh, to share those thoughts with us. Thanks for that matter, Marie. And uh, that has to be the final word on the programme today because our time has run out on us once again. Remember, before we go, that there'll be a podcast available on our website, lmfm.ie, this afternoon. Thanks to Marie Kearns for producing Maggie McGuire for researching and Chris Marie in the control tower. I'm Michael. God willing, we'll see you for our next programme on Monday morning at 9am right here on LMFM. Good morning. Bye-bye. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.